Hi, Sigrid. Hello. Welcome to a new episode of the Better Teams podcast. Vincent here. I am product manager at Antivals, a consultancy company helping you building better teams through training sessions, workshops, coaching, and interim management. You can find everything we do on our website, antivals.com. This week, I would like you to meet Sigrid von Epel. Sigrid is currently taking care of leadership and competence at IKEA. But what I wanted to do was to go back in time and highlight some of the cornerstones of a professional path, because there is so much that you and I can learn from her. Over the years, Sigrid became a learning and development specialist, passionate about the power of learning, of teaching and coaching people. She's been a teacher for many years, so she's developed a unique perspective on what it takes to build and lead all sorts of groups, from the classroom to public and private organizations. In this episode, we'll talk about collective learning, diversity and inclusion, how to set and maintain psychological safety in your team, how it's okay to be vulnerable as a leader. Sigrid will explain very powerful concepts and methods, such as constructivist coaching and also democratic dialogue, a profound way of addressing conflicts. You will see how you can have meaningful conversations as a team and why you should shape communities of learners. Thank you for listening to the Better Teams podcast. And now without further ado, let's join Sigrid. My first question for you, Sigrid, would be like to go back in time, to go back in the 90s. You started out as a teacher. Um, I was a teacher myself, so I can relate. Uh, yeah. And I was wondering what led you to teaching? That is a very simple answer I can give you. I didn't want to become a teacher. I was very afraid of it. Um, but the economic circumstances were such that with my degree and in the job market, the best option was to become a teacher. And as I come from a family with lots of teachers, it was uh, quite easy to just step into it and and I was like I'm not ready for this and my mother said yes you are <laughs> and I started and the funny thing is that as soon as uh, my teacher training started and I taught my first lesson I loved it a bit later on in your uh, in your career path you had been an instructor of, of English as mm -hmm. a foreign language you wrote that you discovered at that time what real collective learning was and what team building, I'm quoting you here, team building based on radical inclusion yeah. is actually, what is that real collective learning? So you've mentioned uh, collective learning, you've mentioned also that radical inclusiveness, and I think um, those go together. If you can do that as a teacher, to take uh, diversity very seriously, um, that means that every person in your group feels accepted, feels in the right place, and feels... Um, that they belong there. And this is going to help them to learn. And at the same time, it's going to help them also accept the others. So what you get is, to put it very simply, teacher sets example, accepts the diversity in the group, and everybody in the group starts taking on that example and accepting each other. It's not something that is given to just anybody. And I think it's something that some people may discover becoming a teacher that it's not for them. And it's not going to happen also with just any group. So I'm not trying to say like, oh, you know, you just go out and love everybody and then everything is perfect. It's not always as automatic as that. It takes work and it takes especially work on yourself. But that radical inclusiveness where you realize that, that 
the, the difficult person or the uh, perhaps uh, slightly autistic person or a person who's going through difficult personal circumstances or the person who's simply behind all the time and cannot catch up with the rest of the group. All those people require your unconditional support. <laughs> And once people feel that they're getting your unconditional support, they're also going to unconditionally start supporting each other. It makes a lot of sense to me because I was also a teacher. But to broaden the scope of it a bit, of course, diversity is a big buzzword. Uh, it's been, mm -hmm. These days, it's been for a while. Many companies are claiming, proud of saying that they look for diversity or they, they are very diverse. Some of them maybe sometimes forget about inclusion also. So diversity is good, mm -hmm. but if you don't include people really well, uh, how does it work? So would you have concrete advice beyond these um, great principles that you have? These, these are really healthy and really great. How do you uh, create um, inclusion for diversity? Well, diversity, of course, uh, by its very nature is incredibly diverse. So <laughs> we'll have to select a few examples. Let's say two people just don't want to work together. I think it's, in my opinion, it would be a mistake to force them. I believe very, very much that the learner has to become as autonomous as the learner possibly can. Of course, in the beginning, you need to guide them. But the further they go on in their process, the more they take into their own hands. And especially what they need to be able to take into their own hands is who they are. Because they know better than you who they are. So if someone says, I don't want to be working with that person because you know we go back five years and you don't know what I've been through with them they probably have a reason and there I would really say your workshop or training session or whatever it is that you're doing is not the place to solve that problem there I would recommend post a timeout propose another time and place propose it perhaps not even you but someone else could help them work that out yes it would be better to work that out but the workshop you're doing you have different goals your goal there is not to resolve conflict your goal there is to learn a skill for example so what do you need to do what do you need to adapt at that moment in your plan because you had it all figured out how you're going to organize the session and then someone is acting up and like being a nuisance no it, they're not the nuisance they are who they are they are good you have to be flexible so what, what do you need to adapt? I would say adapt. You have to be really quick at that. Um, I can give a second example of that. For example, of what I really learned. I was always putting my students in pairs because in pairs they learn well, especially when learning a language. And one person just, she was always reluctant. And I, and I was really, it was a learning moment for me because I was like, please, you know, my lesson plan says pair learning and you're not pair learning. Um, but one day I realized what the issue was with her when I asked them all to do some creative writing and people were just getting all busy with their topics and everything else. And, and she said, but what do I need to write about? And I said, just, just be creative. Yeah, with a big smile. And she said, but I don't know how to be creative. And I just realized I had been giving her the wrong instructions all along. She was really a person who needed to be much more on her own, to be much more guided and structured. Yeah, to be respected as who she was. So I said, okay, I'll give you a topic. And then she was fine. And she was creatively writing on the topic I gave her. That's all she needed, that little tweak. And for the future, whenever there was pair work, I said, you can work in pairs or alone as you prefer. And she was usually the only one who preferred to work alone, but she had that freedom. So you need to be flexible. What I hear from you is you need to inquire, ask questions, understand, 
around what is the person going through, who she, who he or she is, what he or she needs. I think that's key. You're not always going to think about asking questions you, or you're not always going to have the time to get to know everybody in every aspect. So what you need is a climate where everything can be expressed freely, where people know that whatever I say in this room will be received with bienveillance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. French <laughs> will not be taken badly. Yeah. I will not be punished. So you need a safe environment. Not everybody in your group is going to always maintain that safety, but you as the person who is coordinating and facilitating, you need to maintain safety. I've had one moment where I did not maintain safety. I mean, I've, I must have had more than just the one, but I remember <laughs> one very clearly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my apologies to everybody out there that if I ever was not maintaining the safety, I'm really sorry about that. But especially one young girl who was pregnant, a uh, very young girl, pregnant, and, and the pregnancy was not so easy. And I snapped at her. She took it badly, and I apologized but you've really you know you've made it difficult for that person to still feel comfortable mm. so yes sometimes it's a difficult learning process at that point you think that you broke the relationship you had or was it yes. okay afterwards how did you rebuild that uh, she stayed away from class okay unfortunately well the, there was of course also the fact that the, the pregnancy was was complicated so there were physical medical reasons for her mm. to stay away what i'm trying to say is that you're not perfect and you're going to have these moments where you really need to apologize and if i had been able to to, to try and reconnect with her i would have but she just stayed away and Yeah, it was, it was not easy to solve. So actually that part of the psychological safety that you're talking about here is, uh, is also really about being vulnerable as a leader, teacher, or any, like if you make a mistake, you can say that you actually made a mistake and yeah. just come back and have this discussion if yes. you have the opportunity, of course. Yeah. Yes, which I did do with the rest of the group. I yeah. told the rest of the group that you all remember you were there. Yeah. I reacted badly. So yes, you need to repair as much as possible. When you went in front of the whole class at that time, were you afraid to lose some credibility or to lose some authority or some power or, or mm -hmm. on the on the opposite uh, you yeah. did it more willingly saying no no it's going to be part of the of who i am and how i teach and how i lead my class yes it's a gamble isn't it uh, yeah. there might be people that actually uh, don't like to see any sort of weakness that can happen it can happen as a manager for example that you've got people on your team who just don't accept it um, it's a choice that you have to make i think how authentic am i going to be what kind of leader do I want to be? There's this really interesting book by Jeffrey Pfeffer. It's called Leadership BS. And he, I don't entirely agree with, with what he writes, but he makes the point that if people are going to advance their careers uh, in tough environments, very competitive environments, they should not display vulnerability. They should not display too much authenticity uh, or empathy or any of those things because those things are not going to get them where they need to be. Mm. And so that's what I mean by making the choice. I don't think that there is one size, one size fits all type of leadership that's going to be you know, the best and then the next hype and the next hype. No, I think that you need to make a choice. Do I want to be mainly the person who is responsible for results and people? And is that where I want to go? And will I do what it takes to take that responsibility? 
or is this all about power about where i want to go professionally advancing my career increasing my my influence increasing perhaps my salary as well what orientation do i want to take and then make sure that you end up in the right environment because if the wrong person ends up in the wrong environment it's not going to work Later on, you became a lecturer. You discovered a real interest in teacher training. So training yes. teacher instead of teaching um, students uh, yeah. and encouraging learning by doing, which is also mm -hmm. something I strongly believe in and we can talk about it a, a bit more. So learning by doing and constructivist coaching. Two words you use on LinkedIn, yeah. really precise again, is focus and retention. I would like to ask you first, what is constructivist coaching and, uh, and what made your learning environment so powerful at that time? The constructivist yeah. coaching, as I put it, it's, um, is that a thing? Well, it depends. I mean, I, I put it there. It's sort of a very, very concise way to say uh, two important things. Uh, the one important thing is that the learning framework, the theoretical framework of learning that I believe in is the constructivist vision, which I have to say immediately, philosophically, there are a number of things that you could debate uh, because constructivism is very much about the idea that human realities are makeable and we can construct our own world very much. And so philosophically, I would say, okay, let's leave that to the side. But now let's focus on the aspect purely of learning and constructivist uh, researchers have sort of enumerated a number of features of effective learning that, you know, if you try to pay attention to them, and there's six of them, if you try to implement all six all the time, you're going to get optimized learning. Those six are not enough. There's more to do, but they are basic. And that's what I'm saying um, when I'm saying constructivist coaching. I'm trying to put two words together to illustrate that I think I see the role of the teacher as someone who is going to try as much as possible to enable effective learning and take on the role of a learning coach at the same time, coaching the learner to do the work. I'll say a bit more about the six, but I'll say one more thing before I continue. A teacher is not just a coach. A teacher is also, among other things, someone who gives instruction. And it is very important to always keep giving instruction and structure. The student, the learner is not going to do everything on the road. That is not what we believe in today, as far as the research is concerned. Um, but to get back to those six, what is effective learning? When we learn, we are constructing things in our brain. That's the constructivist idea. So learning is constructive. It is cumulative. It builds on prior knowledge and prior skills and prior ideas. It is collaborative. We are social learners. It is contextual. It's very good always to look at what kind of context the learner is the learner in, what kind of context will the learner need these skills in, and to get as contextual, as real as possible. Learning is self-directed. You learn much better if you're going to be able to take the lead to some extent. Again, with the caveat that the teacher also has to lead It's not just the learner leading themselves, the teacher also has to lead. Um, but so that self-directive aspect is important. And then the sixth one is goal-oriented. You learn best if you know where you're trying to go. So that's those six. So if you ask me what is constructivist coaching, I would say it's the role of the teacher as a coach to enable the learner to, through those six features of learning, try and learn as best as they can. If you can add to that package a number of other things, such as, for example, a lot of activation of your learners, learning by doing, 
as you say, if you can add to that also an appeal to the different senses, because some people are more visual, some people are more auditive, some people are more uh, tactile. If you can add to that the senses as well, if you add to that also what we talked about before, of course, the safe environment, the connection, the love. If you add all those up, what you get is a powerful learning environment. So powerful learning environments are environments where learning is optimized by making specific choices that I've just tried to explain. Easy, isn't it? <laughs> it yes. sounds really easy. When you, no, <laughs> you but it's learn it just like that. Yeah, yeah it's very so it's clear. complex. Especially when you think that it could be on the shoulder of one person being either the teacher or the manager, which actually could be a question I could ask you. Mm -hmm. is, uh, is it really on the shoulder of this person only? Or um, how can you best mitigate the, um, the accountability, the responsibility maybe, or the, mm -hmm. just um, the whole dynamic of the, of, of the team or the classroom? Yeah, well, when you look at teacher training today, it's really much more and more um, team-oriented than it used to be. Um, I, I hope we will further evolve in that direction. So what does that mean? For example, that when people uh, go through their teacher training, they're working together, they're supporting each other. How are they doing that? One obvious thing would be, for example, teamwork, where you're actually trying to achieve a result together. But other examples are uh, reflecting together, for example. This is very important. Giving each other feedback, uh, learning from each other's um, experiences, asking for advice feeling supported even when you're having a, a difficult time so um, the support that peers can give each other uh, when they are learning to become teachers uh, the support also that their lecturers should be giving them uh, should have the time uh, to give to them is very important and then as we continue the journey when people actually become teachers are they alone no they're not alone they're part of a school team with um, a vision with older teachers who can be mentors. Um, they can continue if they like. Reflection groups, intervision groups with other young uh, teachers, for example. There are initiatives such as team teaching, teaching as a duo, two people in the same classroom, perhaps not simultaneously, sometimes simultaneously. There's a number of things. That said, it is true, this we can see from, from research also, that the individual personality of the teacher has an enormous impact on a group. So training our teachers well, preparing them well, and not leaving them on their own once they've started in, mm. on the job is crucial. Every time we say teacher, I hear also manager all the time. Yeah. For example, one important thing that a manager can do is, is you know, good feedback is so important. Concrete and specific feedback, timely feedback, not avoiding the positive, not avoiding the negative, just saying what you observe and saying, I see you doing this. I heard you saying that. I think that you could learn from that experience. And then after the learning, saying, well, I, I see the difference. All that, this constant dialogue between manager and team members crucially important just as much as it is in the classroom last week with maxim we recorded a new episode of the podcast it's specifically about feedback and part of what you said is exactly what max and i discuss we keep on coming closer to nowadays in your uh, professional life at some point you've been a counselor i'd like us to discuss a little bit well-being at work you've worked at reducing conflict and harassment 
do you have key elements do you have advice to share to increase this well-being at work for any people facing conflict and, and harassment so i was a person de confiance uh, within my organization what i was trying to do was think of prevention what kind of initiative could we set up in this organization to try and make sure it happens less often and i decided to focus on bullying because i could see in the behavior of certain people around me that there was there were forms of bullying and so i set up an initiative which was uh, quite refreshing I, i found sort of gathered people around on a voluntary basis uh, and i showed them a video with actors you know it's enacted but it's so it's about a woman who testifies i've been bullied by my colleagues and this is what that did to me and then i tried to get the conversation going after the video in small groups about what happens when people are bullied what happens is that some people take the initiative and actually become the bully some other people might join in with the bully for their own diverse reasons but then there's the large silent majority so the middle group who can go either way and as that is the majority that's the biggest group we all have that choice or often in life we have that choice am i going to try and support the victim or am i going to go with the bully or am i going to speak up and do something and so what i wanted was people in the organization without finger pointing without trying to put blame on people but just get the thinking going like make people more aware of what they were observing around them and then more specifically the bully themselves that one person or those two people who are actually actively picking on others could they be made to think for themselves without anybody having to discipline them or anything but just could they be brought to their senses on their own that seemed to me the first step if that doesn't help then management has to step in and say okay we're going to try and create a more direct dialogue to go back to the notion of conflict itself i would ask what do you think about conflict in many organizations many teams they are reluctant to face conflict they would rather avoid it and um, there are many definitions of conflict some people consider it positive some consider it negative uh, what is your view on conflict how would you define it this is my own big uh, my big challenge I am the type of person who naturally likes to avoid conflict. So you've really touched a sensitive point there. It's uh, it's my area of development for sure. Still is after all these years. If you ask me how I would define conflict, I would say I like to differentiate it from a difference of opinion. Having different opinions is one thing. Having different opinions without it becoming a conflict is easy <laughs> in a way. I mean, you could just uh, say, oh, "Okay, let's talk about this," and then you know we talk and talk, and in the end we find some solution. But in my definition, uh, it becomes conflict when stronger emotions come up, negative emotions, emotions that muddle our thinking, that create distrust between people, that I think lower our concentration mm. and certainly diminish our well-being. I think I have read. A quote the other day saying, I don't remember the the author of the quote saying that conflict starts when feelings are being hurt. I think that would be that would sum it up. Um, and some people would say, no, no, conflict could be like a difference of opinion is already conflict, so conflict can be positive. But for me personally, I like to use it more in this more negative way, exactly mm -hmm. where pain comes in, uh, where people start hurting each other. I've never seen anything good come from it, but of course. That said, if you take the conflict and you actually work with it, then good things can come from it. I believe in that very much. And that is one of the reasons why democratic dialogue actually came into existence. You are listening to the Better Teams podcast. Thank you. I hope you enjoy it. 
Did you know that my co-host Max is very active on YouTube? He produces weekly videos to share practical content for first-time leaders directly from his extensive experience. If you like to discuss management and leadership topics, you should definitely check it out. Go to Max Castera on YouTube, after this episode, of course. But for now, let's go back to our conversation. Let's jump into democratic dialogue. We are doing a little bit of a jump in time. For five years, you worked at the Erasmus Hall School. And for me, that idea, this concept that you share on LinkedIn, but you don't give too much information about it, it was fascinating mm -hmm. for me. So it's one of the first questions I asked you when we talked on the phone the other day is what is mm -hmm. it about? Like explain it to me and explain it to people. What is democratic dialogue about? It was a method to take those conflicts and take them further in a positive way. In 2015, it actually really came into being as an answer to the taboo or conflict situation that schools were experiencing, especially in uh, Brussels, the Brussels education system, where sensitive topics were creating situations inside and outside the classroom, but specifically in schools where teachers and students pupils alike were saying like i don't know what to do anymore people just felt like they didn't have the skills they weren't equipped to talk about sensitive topics without conflict and fighting if you like um and so the idea emerged to say well we've got a teacher training program here i was head of the teacher training program at, at erasmus Hall school and it was a pluralistic teacher training program which meant that we had people from different religions philosophies that in in netherlands uh, we call levensbeschouwingen so faith traditions if you like we had the lecturer who trained future teachers to become islam teachers We had another lecturer who was teaching people to become Catholic religion teachers. And we had another one who was teaching people to become uh, philosophy teachers in French. It's uh, laicite. So we had that plurality and we had the expertise, of course, of training teachers. So the idea emerged, why don't we put together a pluralistic team of experts who can help schools and support schools and support teachers in having a better conversation? And we called it democratic dialogue because we realized that it wasn't just one topic. It was about topics in general. In a democracy, people need to be able to discuss those without fighting. So discuss these even sensitive topics without getting into personal conflict, but trying to find ways to be more constructive and to find a way out. Because in the end, you have to live together. So there the name Democratic Dialogue came. How do you have meaningful conversations? I remember something we talked last time was to mm -hmm. how to walk the line. You said that between having meaningful conversation and creating catastrophes. <laughs> that I loved because I mean, usually when, when teams or anybody is like, yeah. okay, if we go that way, like yeah. if we think about like any family dinner uh, that could go to the field of politics <laughs> or religion or anything, it's a catastrophe. You know it, you know it. So you don't want to recreate that in your team, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you do that to make it positive and good in the team, but not having superficial conversations that will, yeah. with that you will stay safe, let's say that way, but you, you really want to go to the problem and have meaningful conversation without going for a major catastrophe. So now comes the magic, uh, the silver bullet, the magic recipe. Uh, no, not. Uh, so um, <laughs> oh, no. Uh, no. <laughs> no, what I'm trying to say is that um, we cannot expect miracles, but there are certainly uh, ways to harness 
these processes. The fine line that I was talking about the other time, it was about how can you walk that fine line between, yes, having meaningful conversation, but not tumbling into the abyss with your team. I really stressed at the time, it has to be a choice that you make to go the long way. We cannot expect to have meaningful dialogue, constructive dialogue, if we are not willing or able to put in the time. I am convinced that if you don't have time to really commit to that, or you don't have the time yet, not yet, not now, then maybe sometimes it's better to keep the taboo for a while and put it in the fridge, as we, as we could say, and then just say, well, let's do this later. Because at one point, you're going to need to really commit, to really want it to dig into things and to solve it. If you've got people that love conflict, that thrive on conflict, and that want to maintain the conflict, I'm not interested in solving it, then you need first to deal with that. You have to have that moment where you say, are we all in this together? Are we all committed to walk the long road or not? You'll have to have that moment of clarity. And then even when we're all on board and we all really want to somehow solve the conflict and get to better understanding, it's still going to get worse before it gets better. We must remember that. Dialogue is not happy, clappy, pink flowers and, and sunshine. It can be a, a difficult process. Your first phase will be, let's start talking. And people will be polite and it will be perhaps pleasant. Oh, we had a good chat. But you haven't really had meaningful conversation deeper into things. And if you start digging deeper into things, you're going to end up in the red zone. In the red zone, people start hurting each other. People start having negative emotions. There's going to be a destabilization of your status quo. It's a hard phase. Then you can move on to the next phase which is where people become curious and start asking questions and start trying to understand why the other person takes a different position from mine. Where do my emotions come from? What is it that makes me so angry about this? That's the third phase, the inquisitive phase. And then if you're lucky and if you work hard, you can get to the fourth phase where people actually find new common ground and co-construct something completely new, a new way of living together, a new way of understanding each other, a new way of anticipating sensitive topics, each other's sensitivities, and that is a blissful place to be. But it's hard work to get there. I will say one extra thing that is very, very crucially important because you ask me, how do you do this? Well, I would say you do this with an external facilitator you need someone who's going to be there for that group all along the way someone who's going to take a moderating role with democratic dialogue we believe very much in the fact that this facilitator call it the dialogue coach call it whatever you the counselor or whatever you want to call it that person is going to have to take really an outsider position and observe and help people observe how do you make sure that there is a long-lasting effect afterwards? I'm going to be a bit caricatural on purpose, but to avoid that from, okay, they, uh, the team has reached that holy point where they really co-construct and they feel good about the problem, the taboo, the uh, conflict they solved. Uh, how do you make sure it was not just for that problem and then when there will be another problem, they will go back to the first phase before the terrifying red zone? 
but you can't, can you? Mm. If there's anything, the world today is unpredictable and it's amazing how sometimes, for example, we like to think of ourselves as a unity and I'm a unity and you're a unity. And then if those two unities can learn to live together, then they live happily along. But actually I'm diverse inside myself and you're diverse inside yourself and your life circumstances change and my professional situation changes and the world changes and there's a virus and there's a shortages and there's others, you know, the economy changes. All these factors. But I would say that is something very important that really gives me a lot of hope is that when people have the experience, even just once, of having a group conversation where they felt they made progress, where they felt listened to, and they felt that they could really express themselves and they heard the other people express. So when once people have had that one positive experience, it's hard to shake because you feel like, well, actually it is possible. And it gives you confidence for the future. Say, well, things might get rough again, but we will make it through. We're going to solve this. People actually develop these skills inside themselves. I'd like to talk a bit about community as well, because at the very beginning, I think yeah, towards the beginning of our um, discussion, you talked about people, human beings being social and learning better when they are together. Uh, and it makes me think about two things mainly. First, uh, I could ask you, what do you think is happening these days or what will happen because of the social distancing? Even though I think the word, the word itself, the expression social distancing is really bad, isn't really not accurate, but anyways, no, it's, it's, physical it's distancing. true that it's there. So, but uh, there is still a distance. So um, my first question would be that. And also I read that one important element for success was for you was to create a community networking. So a sense of community. And I was wondering what difference it's making for you to shape communities of learners to have to learn together uh, regarding learning and retention. What difference mm -hmm. does it make? It completely ties in with what we discussed earlier about the inclusiveness, the radical inclusiveness. You can say Let's do some collaborative learning on a very superficial level where, like we said, you know, pair work, group work, teamwork, and you say, oh, we have an assignment and we're going to try and get to the results together and you do this and you do that. We divide up the tasks and discuss a bit and then put it all together, write a report and that's it. That is collaborative learning. It's part of it. But what I feel is uh, much more profound is where the whole team is constantly involved with each other's learning and we are learning as a whole. So it's not just person A, B, and C who are becoming better at skills X, Y, and Z, but we as a team, all together, we are moving our capabilities from one place to another. And everyone's involved and everyone needs to be heard, seen, and everyone needs to be given feedback on how we're doing. It's so powerful to be part of a team, of a group that is going from one place to the other. I think anyone can relate to that if we think of, of our personal lives. And that certainly requires a coordinator, teacher, manager, trainer, whatever. One person who is going to set the right example and be constantly inclusive and also be self-critical absolutely because that person is also just human and will make mistakes and will have to say that moment yesterday I did not act according to our values and I'm sorry about that please help me get better because I want to do better you know so it's, it's that's um I think for me, that's what really profound collaborative learning is do you have concrete practical ways to 
help people uh, mm-hmm. developing these connections and these deeper relationships and make sure that uh, when I do something or when I learn something, doing it thanks to somebody or because of somebody or with somebody at least. And mm-hmm. I have some interdependencies here yeah. that I acknowledge and I end up appreciating. I'm not the big expert on teamwork. Okay? <laughs> I'm, I don't want to present myself as such, but I would say from what I've read and what I've done myself, um, the big word, the key word is reflection. Reflection means that we time out, we zoom out regularly and we reflect together on what's been happening. So we take a meta perspective regularly. It can be that you need a lot of that in the beginning and less towards the end, probably. But you're going to have to make the effort, especially at the beginning, to take the meta perspective and say, yesterday we did this and that. How did that work? Where did I experience a problem? What kind of problem? How can we do better tomorrow? It's a combination of auto-reflection. What can I do better? Perhaps what have I done really well? And what would I like to continue to do more of? And then also what would I like to start doing less of? And then, so that's auto-reflection. And then also peer reviewing, observing each other. So the key word is reflection. When we act, we need to take time out to reflect on that. The risk is just staying in the action, especially if there's a deadline and there's high stakes. You've got other things to do as well. So it's, it has to be a conscious and deliberate decision to take those moments of reflection. I would say that is certainly one thing. And another thing is, of course, accountability. I mean, it's a social phenomenon. It's a group thing. In any group, there will be people who work harder and people who work less hard. This is just social reality. And in one group, I could be the hard worker. And in another group, I might be the loafer. (laughs) It's a human reality. So we must also try to just understand it from that point of view, not trying to point fingers and say, that person behaved badly. No, it's about what what are we seeing here? we We see a lot of energy there and then we see less energy there. So how can we fix this? And what do those people need? to do their part and in the end it's accountability it's about saying well you know you did have these and these deliverables and they're not there so you need to keep looking as well at the i should add the word individual and the individual accountability Mm. not just group accountability there is one thing that i would like to add of course it makes perfect sense to make sure that the people who are good at certain things that they are doing those certain things but it is equally crucial that they can choose also what they're going to be doing and someone with very little writing skills don't have them write up the report. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Naturally, people will, will usually say, well, you know, I would like to do that. And another, you know, I'll do the PR and I'll do the research and I'll do the number crunching. Coming closer to present days now, there is um, one position you ended up uh, doing, which actually, retrospectively, to me and I hope to everybody listening, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> it's the beauty of your path. You became a learning and development specialist at Actiris. And to me, yeah. like, yeah, the fact that you went to learning and development, I was like, yeah, of course. How much do you think that all this experience, all this practice, these experimentations we went through together now, how much do you think they have had an impact on your mission there? My mission at Actiris Academy, to be more specific. Yeah, so, true. Yeah. Uh, we would, the Actiris Academy uh, provides learning and development for all the Actiris staff, which is, I think, they're moving towards 1,700 people now. By the way, this, the Actiris is the employment office for the Brussels region, and we were yeah. securing uh, training for the staff. I would say two things. So one is that through being a teacher, being a te- um, training manager, being a teacher trainer, 
um, and head of program, yes, I'm, I have acquired a certain specialism, if you like, in learning and development. You learn so many things that you can use. Uh, one of the biggest strengths perhaps I had uh, was part of my job was, uh, and not just my job, we were a team of learning and, and development specialists. One important part of our jobs is um, sourcing vendors, sourcing suppliers of training and coaching. And so you become very critical. You learn to distinguish between dental suppliers that are just trying to sell you their product and those that are really going to have a very big probability of creating added value for your trainees. Yeah, the critical eye and also very important, of course, maintaining good relationship with those suppliers because you want them to keep doing a good job and keep adding the value, which is sometimes requires some negotiation. It requires perhaps some conflict resolution now and then. It requires certainly listening well to their concerns and their needs. So that aspect certainly prepared me well to become a learning and development specialist. Another aspect was um, that my specific topic in the last two years at Actiris was uh, management. And so I was responsible to, with others, not just me, but um, co-responsible to make sure that the managers at Actiris had proper training and coaching. And so I put together a coaching program for the managers that uh, personally I, I still believe in very, very strongly. Of course, I was relying very much not just on my learning and developments expertise in general but also my own management experience to to put that together uh, to understand really what managers need and the big thing for me was uh, managers need made to measure solution because managers are a bit like teachers as you've been saying a few times um, it's a complex job and you're constantly constructing yourself and you know trying to become that manager that you need to become and it's such a personal journey so coaching yes uh, we had a, a coach program that consisted of individual management coaching for managers on every level, team coaching where the manager with their team could be coached together to perhaps improve certain things or to solve certain things. The third thing was intervision, what we call the management lab, which is managers together. You could call them reflection groups if you like. It's, it's where they come together, discuss the typical challenges they face and ask each other for advice and learn from each other's experiences. And then finally, we had the coaching that was very much focused on feedback and evaluation. So how do I have those one-on-ones with my team members in an effective way, a humane way to, you know, be assertive and clear enough in my communication at the same time, empathic enough to understand the reaction of the other person. That was an important uh, part of my job. I um, had prepared like three questions that I wanted to, to uh-huh. end uh, yeah. with you. <laughs> if you could go back in time, uh, like we actually did together and change something first, would you? And if yes, what would you change? Would I change? I, I That was my first reaction. Like, I wouldn't change a thing. You know, that was my first reaction. Like, oh, I don't regret anything because sometimes uh, things go bad. And then uh, after a while, you realize that they've come back together again and, you know, things fall into place. Um, but there is one thing that I would change. Um, unfortunately, at one point in my career, I was uh, discriminated against as a, as a female hmm. because of pregnancy. And so this led to my unjustified uh, dismissal by a certain organization. If I could do it again, I would, uh, I wouldn't say litigate, um, but I would go to UNIA, which is now UNIA, the Belgian Equal Opportunity Institute, and lodge a complaint there, or at least um, signal to them that this has happened. Why? Because I find it very important that uh, we don't have discrimination of any kind in the workplace. I didn't do that at the time, but I am very happy to say that, for example, at Actiris, the anti-discrimination cell 
there, very active. And there are many ways that people today who feel discriminated against in the workplace, um, they can certainly contact Actidis within the Brussels region. Actidis is, is responsible for that. It's important to do that. And it could be male, female. It could be other things. It could be your, your physical, uh, the physical handicap. It could be uh, your linguistic background, a number of things, uh, the color of your skin. Did that become part of your uh, uh, critical eye? You mentioned the critical eye when you were talking about learning and development. I mean, I I know you mentioned it specifically for uh, providers. I can very well visualize that big critical eye uh, as, a, as a big <laughs> eye. What, yeah. would be, what would be part of it, actually? What, what do you think Sorry. you really focus more when, when you see it? You're like, ooh, that, that is triggering something. Like It's triggering uh, some light in you. <laughs> no, the, the critical eye is just about um, being as professional as possible about mm. learning and development. No, what that taught me is that when something really unfair has happened, there is help. We have strong legislation and we have agencies that can support it in Belgium. You don't have to get an expensive lawyer to, to have your rights acknowledged. There are other ways. Yes, report it, talk about it. And if you need to lodge a complaint. How did you feel at that time? Because it was for you being able to dialogue especially like explaining, um, deconstructing problems. It's so important for you. So how do you, when you are facing something so unfair, like mm -hmm. being um, having some problem with your employer uh, because of pregnancy, how do you feel at that point? Because it's completely against what you believe in. Yes, it is completely <laughs> against what I believe in. Um, I also know that I, you know, I, had, I had done a good job, so it was completely unfair. Yes, I was angry. So that's a personal learning uh, process of, of dealing with anger. It made me very sad, but it made me very angry. And it took me, let's say, it takes time to deal with anger, both on a personal level and a professional level. And this, on the professional level, I can say, uh, I've read about this, that usually people have to be well into their next job to finally get rid of the negative feelings related to an unfair dismissal. And that's what happened to me. I was well into my next job. Before mm. I was really like, okay, now I've let it go. I'm not yeah. angry with those people. You need some distancing. Yes, you need time. If you could tell something to a younger version of yourself, your professional self, and in a way it's kind of an invitation also to talk to young professionals, um, what would it be? What would you tell? I would tell them that they always have to believe in themselves because if you're not going to believe in yourself, then who will? And there are moments when it's very necessary to get advice from others. You don't know it all, uh, at all. <laughs> and the younger you are, the less you know, and the less you realize how, less, how little you know. Um, so you need advice. You need to talk to others. You need to ask questions. You need to inform yourself. Very, very important. But at the same time, believe in yourself. Just believe that you can do things. Because once you start showing that you've lost that belief, there will always be people who love you enough that will keep supporting you. But there will be others who don't love you just enough to believe in you. So to them, to convince those people, you need to just say, well, I can do this. And if I can't do it today, I will be able to do it. Maybe I can't do it yet. Maybe I need to learn, but I will be able to do it. I'm going to get where I want to get. That's what I would say. It's a very powerful, uh, inspiring message, I think. I will give you the final say. If you could send a message, who do you want to send a message to? 
I would like to send a message to all the people out there that feel, for whatever reason, that they need to go through professional life in a selfish way, that they need to just look out for number one, and that the world is a hard, tough place, and as a consequence, they have to be a hard, tough person. I would like for those people to find healing, peace, to find perhaps someone to help them get more positive. I would love to be the person they meet that can help them be more positive. And I would like to tell them that I don't share this opinion. I think that the world will be effectively a very hard and tough place if we all choose to be very hard and very tough with each other, but that there are other possibilities. Always keep an open mind that there are other ways of doing life and doing work. I think these are wise uh, and generous words to end that conversation between uh, between us, I think. And uh, I would like again to thank you a lot uh, for accepting to talk to me uh, and uh, being so open yeah, and sharing what you know. I'm sure uh, it will be it will be useful and uh, resonating to, to many. I hope so. And I'm also uh, open to feedback and eh, to be true, <laughs> <laughs> to walk the talk. So uh, yeah. if there's any uh, reactions, I am always happy to hear different opinions and challenges to my way of thinking. Thanks a lot. Good. Thank you, Vincent. Thanks everybody for listening. If you like this podcast, uh, please give it a good review. You can also join our Better Teams podcast growing community on Facebook, where you can start interacting with other fellow listeners and directly ask us questions that we can address in the next episode. Thank you for listening. See you in the next episode.